Elden Ring, in many ways, may appear to be a classic fantasy game, and yet beneath that surface, we find a lot of cosmic lore, interwoven masterfully to create a fascinating story. Incredible beings like Estelle and the mysterious plots of the Nox before the final reveal of the Elden Beast. These are extremely pleasant reveals to the first-time player who may not have expected such elements to exist in this world. But with these more cosmic elements come questions. Like Bloodborne, part of the appeal with these grand cosmic plots is that they are meant to feel beyond our comprehension. The Crystallians, the Cataclysm of the Eternal Cities, and Estelle, Natural Born of the Void. These are all subjects we can understand on a surface level, but they do offer some unusual and challenging questions in the lore. Why did Estelle destroy the Eternal City? What brought Estelle to the Eternal City? What are the Crystallians and who made them? What is gravity magic? How can Estelle jump from point to point during our fight? Why is there an Onyx Lord and an Alabaster Lord? In this video we will be exploring questions like this and some of the deeper themes found in Elden Ring regarding the cosmic elements of the story. So join me this week as we explore the various cosmic elements found in Elden Ring. I would like to give a shout out at this point to Quelag and V-Limit, whose videos were both highly influential on many of the base ideas found in this video. I will reference them directly at certain points, but I think it's important to note that their videos have been instrumental in my own basic understanding. And with that said, before we begin, remember that if you like Elden Ring lore, then please consider subscribing to the channel, as I have hours of lore content for you to enjoy. The stars remain distant to the denizens of the lands between, as they do for us in the real world, and the astrologers of an earlier age would locate to the mountain tops of the giants in order to be closer to the subject of their study. The fascination with the stars would continue throughout the history of the lands between. In fact, it would become central to many communities' identity, such as the sorcerers of Rhea Lucaria, and to the banished Nox. And in some ways, the silver power of the stars is seen as an opposing force to the gold of the greater will. We learn that the stars are born in a lightless void by the description found in Astel's Remembrance. We assume that this is the same abyss witnessed by Azur, as the description of Azur's comet reads, When Azur glimpsed into the primeval current, he saw darkness. He was left both bewitched and fearful of the abyss. So it is fair to say that the stars are far removed from the mundane plane of existence, being born and existing in a dark abyss. This of course makes us think of the stars in our real world, which exist in the dark void of space, no doubt what this abyss is alluding to. That being said, the primeval current seems to offer some kind of metaphysical connection to said abyss, meaning it may not exist the same way spatially as our space does in real life. And if you'd like a full look at the primeval current and how it may connect the lands between to the realm of the stars, then please take a look at my primeval current lore video. And yet, while the stars remain far removed physically and metaphysically, fortunately, there is a medium in the lands between that allows sorcerers to connect with the stars in a different manner. I am of course referring to glintstone. Indeed, we find crystal glintstone growths all over the lands between, mostly in Lyarnia, of course, and thankfully we do have some in-game lore as to how this material came to be on the mortal plane. The founding glintstone sorcery, founding Reign of Stars, reputedly describes the event as how glintstone came to be here, and the description reads as follows. The eldest primeval sorcery said to have been discovered by an ancient astrologer, summons a dark cloud of stars overhead. Shortly after, the cloud will release a violent deluge of star rain. Thought to be the founding glintstone sorcery, the glimpse of the primeval current that the astrologer saw became real, and the star's amber rained down on this land. In short, what this describes is that an astrologer, someone researching into the stars, managed to glimpse or connect with the primeval current, and as a result, a dark nebulous space cloud appeared overhead and rained down star rain. 
I find it interesting to note that the glintstone, or the element of the stars that's released here onto the land, is described as a liquid, as star rain, mainly because of the form that we see glintstone taking in the lands between in-game, that of crystal growths. In the real world, crystals grow or form, usually when superheated liquid rock begins to cool and harden, and the molecules arrange themselves in a uniform fashion and they can grow larger as more and more molecules are added to this arrangement. So again, it's a nice attention to detail that From Software described the initial deluge as a liquid. So we can presume that this star energy rained down as a liquid and then would begin to harden, harden into glintstone crystal. Of course, this crystal is very different from the crystals we'd expect in real life, as it is no ordinary liquid that is inside these crystals. And indeed, Selen educates us on the very nature of glintstone. Glintstone is the amber of the cosmos. Golden amber contains the remnants of ancient life and houses its vitality, while glintstone contains residual life and thus the vitality of the stars. It should not be forgotten that glintstone sorcery is the study of the stars and the life therein. So glintstone is like an amber that contains the residual life energy of the stars. Simply put, this is crystallised star stuff, and that is why Selen and her fellow primeval sorcerers don't want people to forget that this isn't just magic, but is literally the study and manipulation of stars. And of course stars are essentially in a constant state of thermonuclear fusion, and they produce vast amount of energy and radiation. And therefore, it is no surprise that glintstone, containing the energy of the stars, behaves almost like a radioactive material. Given that stars and radioactivity give off so much energy, it is no surprise that glintstone is the perfect medium to power sorceries. However, we can see the radioactive nature of glintstone when we look at how it affects organic beings that interact with it over a period of long exposure. Firstly, we have the glintstone dragons. There are many found on top of Moonlight Altar, but specifically there are two named members of this subrace, known as Smarag and Adula. Both Adula and Smarag are literally suffused with glintstone. Not only has it warped their bodies with crystal growths protruding from their skin, but it has also tainted their fire with a glintstone hue and provided them with the ability to use magic. We learn of how this came to pass by reading Smarag's Glintstone Breath item description, which reads as follows. Smarag was a devourer of sorcerers, and over time, his body became corrupted by their glintstones. So this almost seems like it was by accident, because he was feasting on sorcerers, which obviously makes sense if he is in Leurnia, and he also swallowed the glintstones they had on them, for example in their crowns that they wear, or in their staffs, and no doubt the other glintstones that they carried on their person. And this corrupted him over time with the glintstone. And we learn from Adula's Moonblade that he too was a devourer of sorcerers, and thus it was obviously the same process that led to his corruption. There are of course further examples of this exposure, this radioactive reaction, especially when we look at the glintstone miners. Evidently, being a miner of glintstone would be a prolonged exposure to this material, and the effects are plain for all to see. So much glintstone has taken over their body that even their eye sockets have been replaced by the material. And of course, there are examples of animals that live in harmony with glintstone that have also been affected by its radioactive properties, such as the crystal snails, who again not only have glintstone growing out of their bodies, but also breathe a sort of glintstone breath. Of course, one of the main interesting observations of the effects of glintstone is when we look at the primeval sorcerers Azure and Lusat, two of the founding primeval sorcerers. As many will know, the outfits that Azure and Lusat wear aren't really outfits. They are actually growths that have taken over large parts of their bodies, including different organs. And I will read Lusat's crown now. This crown replaced Lusat's brain and skull altogether, and now removed from his body, it is all but dead. And now his manchettes. Manchettes corroded by blue glintstones. 
Lusat had reached a near inorganic state. Indeed, almost inorganic, more like stone or crystal. Even when one swings their sword at one of the legendary sorcerers, your weapon deflects off it, with both the noise and effect suggesting that underneath the skin that they have left, they are more or less completely glintstone. And this is backed up by the shaky, creaky way their hand opens when handing you a primeval sorcery. I would suggest that Lusat and Azur's long relationship with Glintstone and their exposure to the primeval current is responsible for their transformation, whether intentional or not, though given the aims of the primeval sorcerers to become more like stars, this would certainly be seen as a win. Given that Glintstone contains the vitality of the stars, and Glintstone has taken over the brain of Lusat and Azur, and they are still able to operate shows that they must operate on a new plane that is beyond our comprehension. Though I suspect Azur and Lusat really are essentially dead, how could they be alive when their original organs, their original brains, have been completely taken over? But yet there is some kind of being here. It does hand us a primeval sorcery, and it does move. And to understand that, I think we should finally come to the true focus of this chapter, what we have been teeing up for, and that is the mysterious Crystallians. The confusing nature of both Luzat and Azur, and the Crystallians themselves, I think is summed up well by the description found in the Shattering Crystal spell, which reads, The Crystallians are inorganic beings, yet they live. This of course alludes to the fact that while Glintstone is an inorganic material, it contains life energy within it. And for those who maybe question if Crystallians actually are made of glintstone due to their colour being different from the regular greeny-blue crystals, there are more than one shade of glintstone. Specifically, Azura's manchettes refer to a green-blue variant, while Lusat's refer to a blue variant. Indeed, these different colour varieties are reflected on the colour of crystals found on Azur and Lusat themselves, and Smarag and Adula themselves, who both have green-blue and blue respectively. The Crystallians, unlike the Alabaster Lords, were not born, but in fact created, and we learn of this via the Crystallian Ashes, which read, Spirit that wheels round Crystallian blades, both big and small. Its sturdy body itself hewn from crystal long ago. These beings were hewn, meaning that they were sculpted from glintstone, as a statue would be from marble. But why would this happen? What could be the purpose behind the creation of these bizarre creatures? Well, there does seem to be a purpose to them, as their purpose and creator are mentioned in the description of the Crystal Spear, which reads, The inscrutable Crystallians have but one clear purpose, to safeguard their crystals unto the end. One theory posits that they yearn for the return of their creator, who will carve for them new brethren. There is a lot of uncertainty in this statement, but it at least hints at a purpose behind the original crafting of these beings, defending the glintstone crystals. This being the original reason for their creation does seem to line up with their visual design, as they are most likely inspired by the 1915 silent film known as The Golem, and credit to Reddit user Formal Cryptographer for making this connection. According to Wikipedia, this film is based on Jewish and European folklore and tells the story of a golem that was created by a rabbi to protect the Jewish people. It would therefore make sense if these glintstone golems were made by a glintstone sorcerer to protect glintstone. This tracks with the placement of every crystallion we meet in-game, found as bosses in Rhea Lucaria Crystal Tunnel, Celia Hideaway, Academy Crystal Cave, and Altus Tunnel. These are all caves and tunnels that are associated with glintstone crystals. This also extends to the overworld variants that we face as well, found in Moonlight Altar and Lyurnia all around crystal growths. The only exception to this rule are the rotten ones we find in the Halig Tree, but this can be explained away by them being so afflicted by the cosmic power of the Scarlet Rot that they now serve its power and its vector in this world, which is of course Melania. However, returning to the Crystallians, these aren't just mindless automatons. They are spirits that have their own way of thinking, referred to as the Wisdom of Stone. 
For example, the Crystal Staff item description reads, The Crystallion's faint cogitation is known as the Wisdom of Stone. This staff can only be wielded by those of intellect high enough to grasp such wisdom. So let us put some points into intellect and try and understand what is happening here. Cogitation is described by Oxford Dictionary as the action of thinking deeply about something, contemplation. So in essence, it is just their thinking process. And I think this word is used to convey that these beings still make decisions, but just without the use of an organic brain or an organ that does something similar. So this process for these beings seems to be the result of this wisdom of stone, a concept that is apparently hard to grasp for the human mind. However, we can make some educated guesses by re-examining what the Crystallians actually are. They are crystal, yes, but what is inside of these crystals, inside of the glintstone? The residual life energy of the stars. My speculation is that while these golems were human, and given automation and a purpose by their creator, no doubt by magic, I believe it is the life inherent within these beings, within their crystals, that drives their decision making like a collective memory or a hive mind of the stars that exist within the residual star energies. It is through Glintstone that primeval sorcerers like Lusat and Azur are able to connect with the primeval current, a current which connects the stars. And indeed the Crystallians themselves are apparently close to the primeval current. For the description of the Shattering Crystal spell reads, The Crystallians are inorganic beings, yet they live. They cleave close to the ideals of the primeval current, and as such, they are revered guests of the sorcerers. So the Crystallians are closely linked to the primeval current, the metaphysical conduit that connects one to the stars, again suggesting that this is what guides their cogitation, a sort of gestalt consciousness that obviously operates in a way that we can understand, that is a gift to the celestial. So that of course makes the Crystallians a unique opportunity for sorcerers. As we just saw from the item description, these are the revered guests of sorcerers. They are connected to the stars and yet they can operate, almost, as a human. For we know they aren't just mindless and that they have ranks. For example, the crystal release spell reads, The sorcery used by high-ranking adepts among the Crystallians. Meaning that there are different ranks and hierarchy within their quote-unquote society. We also know that they are capable of making deals as we learn of an arrangement between themselves and the Carrions via Magic Downpour, which reads, One of the sorceries of the Carrion royal family, said to have been taught by the Crystallians to mark the swearing of the Old Concord. This spell is very interesting, mainly because it appears to be a form of magic rain, which again makes us think of that original Star Deluge described in the founding Reign of Stars. Again, I believe this illustrates how close the Crystallians are to the primeval current, and to the very stars themselves, hence the unique interest in them. Of course, others are no doubt interested in the Crystallians, not just the Carrions. We learn of the Crystal Cadre via the spell Crystal Barrage, who seem to be a unique group of rare Lucarian sorcerers who are interested in learning from the Crystallians and their power. Of course, given that they cleave close to the primeval current, I have no doubt that primeval sorcerers would be highly interested in communing with the Crystallians. And many people may question whether a human could have created these beings if they are teaching sorcerers so much, but I think that is incorrect, because the Crystallians, yes, were made like any other golem, crafted from a material and probably used magic to give them life, but that doesn't change the fact they are made from glintstone, the literal residual life energy of the stars, and it is that connection that allows them to have unique spells that even their creator may not have known about. But that leaves the question, who did create these golems? Who is the creator mentioned in the Crystal Spear description? Well, I think I have already mainly answered this when we spoke on their visual design. Given their purpose and the visual callback to the film The Golem, it seems to suggest that it would have been a sorcerer with a vested interest in keeping Glintstone safe that created them. Perhaps an esteemed sorcerer like Lusat or Azur, or perhaps it is the astrologer described in the founding reign of stars. We know that Lusat and Azur are responsible for the other primeval sorceries, but we do not have the name of the astrologer that discovered the founding reign of stars. 
Perhaps upon finding the glintstone from his connection to the primeval current, following the deluge of star rain, this astrologer was desperate to keep the new glintstone safe, and thus fashioned the glintstone golems, known as the Crystallians. That is my speculation, but at this point in time, the most likely candidate to me is the astrologer mentioned in the Founding Reign of Stars, or one of the other primeval sorcerers of the capability and power to build such beings. So we have spoken on the unique qualities of glintstone and its power, and how this energy can be used to create sorceries. Yet what many probably don't realise is that gravity magic is actually a derivative form of glintstone magic. And we learn of this via the description of the meteorite of Estelle, which reads, One of the glintstone sorceries that manipulates gravitational forces. A manifestation of the power with which Estelle levelled the Eternal City. So in the next chapter, we will be examining gravity magic, as well as the beings that are strongly associated with it, the Onyx and Alabaster Lords. Gravity, in layman's terms, is essentially a force of attraction between bodies of mass. When there is mutual attraction between certain bodies, such as planets, stars, etc., then it determines the motion of these bodies in a system of balance, such as our solar system. So when we learn that gravity magic is just a glintstone sorcery, or a star sorcery, that manipulates gravitational forces, then this makes sense. Stars are celestial bodies that have gravitational pulls, and so it makes sense that beings like Estelle, a malformed star, can manipulate gravity to redirect meteorites as it sees fit, especially when we consider that this is all magics, and so any inconsistency to the science of our real world can of course be chalked up to this. With that being said, there are a lot of fascinating illusions that can be used to enrich our understanding of some of the symbolism found within the game, as well as help us understand the mysterious beings who are most closely tied to gravity magic, the Onyx and Alabaster Lords. We learn that the Alabaster and Onyx Lords are an ancient race that came to this world via a meteorite, as their swords read, a race of ancients with skin of stone, who are said to have risen to life when a meteor struck long ago. This is a fascinating origin story for these really alien people. What is specifically of interest here is that it states they are risen to life when the meteorite struck, not that they came with the meteorite. This then brings us to their skin of stone. For me it makes sense that these beings are born of the meteorites themselves, born of the material found within these meteors, and that they rose to life from the very meteor themselves. Meteors come in three main classifications, iron, stone, and stony iron, and I think it would be fair to say that most laymen would believe that meteorites to be made of stone, hence the choice to describe them as stony skinned, as it would lead us to conclude that these beings are made from the meteorites themselves. Indeed, if we examine their skin up close, it looks like they have mineral veins running through the stone skin much like a stony iron meteorite might have. Again, I would remind you that gravity magic is the magic of glintstone, which in turn is the residual life energy of the stars. If I was to speculate on the precise nature of these beings, I would estimate them to be beings formed of the meteorite, given life by residual star vitality. To me, they are just another celestial being, and good evidence how intimately connected these beings are to space is the way in which they can appear, as in most situations when we encounter them, they appear to be physically absent before coming through a nebulous porthole, as if they can spatially displace themselves. Indeed, if they de-aggro from the player, they will actually return to where they came from, showing that this is an ability that they can use at will. It is similar to the abilities of Estelle, who is also able to teleport around the arena when we fight them but we will further discuss the significance of this ability and how it can relate to gravity magic later on. Returning to the Onyx and Alabaster Lords themselves, the fact they are called Lords is interesting, and I ran this by Mirko, the translator for Sabako no Meiku, who has done translations on my channel before, to see if this lines up with the Japanese, and indeed they confirmed that they would be referred to as kings in their estimation. Either way, these titles suggest that they hold some kind of authority in the lands between, and this of course makes sense due to the sheer power that they possess. Indeed, 
This seems to be directly stated as the reason for their authority in the description of the meteorite spell, which reads, The sorcery originates from the Oryx lords, who had skin of stone, and were called lords in reverential fear of their destructive power. We witness some of the authority they enjoy over the so-called Starcallers. These are the miners of meteorites that we can see in the rags who have pickaxes, evidently digging for some of those gravity stones, which is the item that refers to these beings as Starcallers in the first place. We see a group of these Starcallers worshipping an alabaster lord in the Weeping Peninsula, no doubt in awe of his celestial nature and his power. Though it is worth pointing out that these Starcallers clearly have some weird attraction to gravity, as they are also seen worshipping other beings of gravitational power, such as the malformed star found in the underground rivers and the falling star beast found in Leyendale. Of course, the very fact that Radan went to Celia to study under an alabaster lord suggests that at least this one enjoyed some position of authority here. But let us now talk of the variants themselves, the alabaster and onyx differences. Not only are different variants referred to as onyx or alabaster lords, but they also have different swords that help separate them. What is the relevance of these? Well, this brings us to the conflation that Elden Ring makes between magnetism and gravity, a subject that has been really well explored by Quelag in a number of videos that I will link below, more specifically their video on magnetism and metals. The general starting point for this discussion comes from one of the most famous wielders of gravity magic, General Rodan himself. As noted by Quelag and others, the symbol found upon Rodan's swords is curiously not the symbol for gravity, but the one for magnetism, or more specifically, a magnetic field. Now, not only is this found on Rodan's sword, but is in general the sigil that appears when using gravity magic, firmly tying it to this field of magic, conflating the two principles, if you will. Indeed, the idea of magnetic poles does seem to be reflected in the two designs of the lords that we get in-game, though later you will see I think there's a more specific reasoning why they are onyx and alabaster that is more closely aligned with gravity. But for now, let's run with the magnetic pole idea. As noted by the Inhuman One in his excellent alabaster and onyx lord lore videos, the materials that make up the swords used by the lords are different as well. The onyx lord sword is made from a golden hued, meteoric ore, and the alabaster lord sword is made from a blue-tinged meteoric ore. What is interesting is that both of these swords provide contrasting effects. I'm of course referring to the ash of war that's attached to each sword. The onyx sword repulses and the alabaster sword pulls, almost as if these variants are meant to represent the two magnetic poles and the two main effects of a magnetic field, repulsion and attraction. We could go even further and speculate that in this fictional world, because their swords are made out of a different magnetised material, that it has a different magnetic focus. This is sorcery, after all. And indeed, gravity is the force of attraction. So why then is there this focus on pushing and pulling, if not to conflate it with magnetism? Why is it not just called magnetic magic rather than gravity magic? Well, in trying to determine the answer to this question, I determined that one of the answers could simply be that it is an illustrative analogy. And indeed, we can find examples of this in real-world science as well. In a Reddit post around this very subject, Reddit user GoliathVV said that gravity and electromagnetism are good buddies while linking a Wikipedia article to gravital electromagnetism. Gravital electromagnetism is a formal analogy between the effects of gravity and magnetism and I will now quote the Wikipedia article that was linked. Gravital magnetism is a widely used term referring specifically to the kinetic effects of gravity in analogy to the magnetic effects of moving electrical charge. In a way, that is what I think has been done here in Elden Ring, magnetic principles being used analogously to illustrate the effects of gravity magic in this world. And so thanks again to GoliathVV for highlighting this scientific principle. So in short, I think any references to magnetism in Elden Ring are used analogously for illustrative reasons to describe the effects of the gravity magic to make it more straightforward to understand in terms of push and pull. Yet that being said, I do think we do gravity a disservice if we just leave it at that. 
Yes, there are some illustrative similarities in the magic that makes it analogous to magnetism. Yet I don't think magnetism can explain everything. For example, how the signature spell Meteorite works, or how the Lords and Estelle are able to jump from point to point and use portals to travel. I believe rather than seeing Meteorite as an extension of Rock Sling, as a result of pushing or pulling a meteorite, we should pay more attention to where the meteorites come from. If we read the meteorite spell description, it reads, Summons a void that emits a rain of small meteorites. And indeed, when we look at enemies using this, or whether we use it ourselves, we see little holes opening, little tears in the fabric of reality that seems to open up into deep space where a meteorite is coming through. And to me, these holes or tears or portals is similar to the effect that a stale summons when he wants to move around the room. It's almost as if a black hole opens and he jumps through it. Same with the Alabaster Lords appearing and disappearing on a whim. And indeed, I would suggest these are no ordinary portals, but in fact, wormholes. According to Einstein's theory of general relativity, wormholes could be possible if a black hole was connected to a white hole. Black holes are regions of super dense mass, where the gravity is so strong that everything is pulled towards it, towards its singularity, and is warped around it, and this includes light and time. White holes are the theoretical opposite, regions of outward flowing space-time, where everything is pushed out from the centre, and instead of nothing being able to escape the grasp, nothing is able to actually enter the region of a white hole. If you'd like to learn more about the regions of white holes, then PBS have actually done a really great video on YouTube, which I will link below. But the general idea is that at one end in space you would have a black hole where something is pulled in, and at the other end you would have a white hole, the exit point in another area of space as shown by this diagram, and in between you would have the wormhole. This is of course the idea explored in the film Event Horizon, where the titular ship is capable of faster than light speed by using a black hole generator to travel from one point in space to another instantaneously. Of course, it doesn't really work out, but we won't go into that. It would be easy to get drawn down into a rabbit hole here about the actual science of wormholes, black holes and white holes, but consider that these are gravitational phenomena, and then we have beings strong in gravity magic who are able to instantaneously travel from one point in space to another. Then it also fits thematically in another way that you might have realised by now. There is a black hole and a white hole. These are two gravitational phenomena, and we have two gravitational lords in-game. An onyx lord for the black hole, and an alabaster lord for the white hole. It would also realign the push and pull effects of the gravity magic back with the principles of gravity. As a black hole is a gravitational phenomena that pulls in, and the white hole is a theoretical, albeit, gravitational phenomena that pushes out. This is of course my speculation, but I do think it ties up things neatly, both thematically and in regards to gravity. We will return to the idea of black holes when we look at Estelle's story with the Eternal City in the next chapter. Regardless, these ideas and the power of the Alabaster and Onyx Lords should really emphasise why Radan sought them out. There really is no greater power in the lands between when it comes to mass and movement. And indeed, now that I've looked more into the Alabaster and Onyx Lords and truly understand how powerful they are, it makes sense why Radan is such a force to be reckoned with, alongside his brawn, of course. Though teaching Radan may have had more far-reaching consequences than his Alabaster Lord tutor expected. While Radan's remembrance suggests that he learned gravitational magic initially, for the sake of his loyal steed, the description for the collapsing star spell shows that by the end, he had another use for the gravitational magic. As the description reads as follows. A gravitational technique mastered by the young Radan. I thank you for your tutelage, for now I can challenge the stars. Of course, we know via the description of Roxling that Radan is speaking here to an alabaster lord who was his tutor at Celia. And then of course we learn via Selin and a sword monument that Radan would learn his epithet from a conflict of the same name, the Star Scourge Conflict, in which he used his mastery over gravity magic to halt the constellations and movement of stars themselves. And then it is interesting to note that in the Carrion Royal Jail at Carrion Manor, there is an Onyx Lord, 
Radan's actions ultimately stands in the way of his sister's plans, Rani, no matter what his motivations were for doing so, whether it was for the Golden Order's sake or whether it was for Celia's. Either way, Radan must be taken out for Rani's plans to succeed, and given that we, the Tarnished, do this, this could well have set back Rani's plans for thousands of years. So it is interesting that we find one of these Onyx Lords in a Carrion Jail. Perhaps this is some sort of retribution against their kind. The ability to stop fate itself, the movement of the stars, open up voids to space and drop meteorites in your enemy, no wonder these beings were referred to as lords. But of course there is another being who has an impressive display of gravitational magic, on a scale that is probably far beyond that of an alabaster or onyx lord. I of course refer to the beings known as Estelle, and it is to them that we turn to next. Of course, we could not have spoken on the mysteries of space within Elden Ring without talking about Estelle and the Nox. We have detailed in a number of videos now how the Nox look to the stars to seize power and bring about an age of stars and their Lord of Night. They tried by various scientific and astrological means, creating the Dragonkin Soldiers, the Finger Slayer Blade, and of course the Puppets and Celestial Dew, the latter two being alchemical formulas built from the fate latent within the stars themselves. So when we learn of Estelle's attack upon the third unnamed city of the Nox, it shouldn't come as a surprise, but before we go any further, let's contextualise this event by reading the two main items associated with it, starting with the remembrance of the natural born, which reads, A malformed star born in a lightless void far away, once destroyed an eternal city, and took away their sky, a falling star of ill omen. And then the meteorite of Estelle which reads, a manifestation of the power with which Estelle levelled the eternal city. Giving the meddling nature of the Nox and their various attempts to overthrow the greater will, the instinct of course is to believe that Estelle was brought upon the Nox by themselves. But how is the question of course. V-Limit provides an interesting narrative in his Estelle lore video, which I will link below. In this video, he details the Estelle Project theory. V-Limit suggests that the Nox took a falling star beast as a template and malformed them in the image of the giant skeletons found in the Eternal Cities in an attempt to craft another weapon against the Greater Will, a celestial being to stand in opposition to the Greater Will's own falling star beast, the Elden Beast. There is a lot that is very compelling about this theory. It would of course explain the human-esque features found on Estelle's body, i.e. his skull, as well as its size similarity to the giant skeletons found in the Eternal Cities. One can also not deny the thematic harmony of the struggle between stars and the Erd Tree, the Nox and the Greater Will, and now the Elden Beast and Estelle. There's something else to be said for Estelle's epithet, while in English it is translated to natural born of the void, this may not be correct or entirely accurate. Two respected translators that I have spoken to translate Estelle's title very differently. YouTuber Last Protagonist translates it to be Estelle Spawn of Darkness. Mirko, respected translator who works with the YouTuber Sabako no Meiko, provided the following information on Estelle. Also, in its original, it's not called Natural Born of the Void, but is just darkness, while Otoshiko, a term used for unwanted children, but also for unwanted consequences. So what stands out here from Mirko's translation is unwanted child or unwanted consequences, both of which chime more closely with the description of Estelle as a bastard, referred to as such in the Bastard Stars item description. Being a bastard or an unwanted consequence would align quite neatly with V-Limit's theory. Estelle literally is an unwanted consequence of the meddling of the Nox, a bastard born not naturally, but of experimentation. You could then argue that the other Estelles we find elsewhere are either other subjects of this project or the spawn of the original creation made by the Nox. Either way, it would still fit. So I can't really find any major flaws in this theory, and I would be happy if this was the explanation. But let me instead offer an alternate explanation, one that posits that Estelle already existed 
but still came to the Eternal City due to the actions of the Nox. Of course, one of my main faults with V-Limit's theory is that the remembrance of the Natural Born says that it was born in the Void, suggesting it was already as it was in space before it came to the Eternal Cities. The other area in which I disagree is the Eternal Darkness spell, a pivotal lore item when discussing this subject. It reads as follows. Creates a space of darkness that draws in sorceries and incantations. Originally a lost sorcery of the Eternal City, the despair that brought about its ruin made manifest. When explaining this in the context of their theory, V-Limit likens this to the Eye of Estelle, which would make this piece of lore fit within the Estelle project theory, as it represents the Eye of Estelle, and of course it is Estelle who brought ruin upon the Eternal Cities. However, this is where I disagree, as I see this not as Estelle's Eye, but as a black hole, a phenomenon that we've already discussed. Black holes could easily be described as Eternal Darkness, for black holes devour light and are the only thing in the universe that are truly dark. Black holes are regions in space where gravity is so dense that everything, including light, is pulled towards it and drawn into its singularity. One need only look at the effect of the spell to see that it is most likely representing a black hole, for it draws in sorceries and incantations much as a black hole would draw in light and time. So what if a black hole symbolised the end of this eternal city? And there are two main ways of looking at this as far as I'm concerned. First of all, we know Estelle fell upon the city like a falling star, as he is described in his remembrance as a falling star of El Omen. Then there's of course Zuli's video on Estelle, that details how once Estelle had a VFX and E movement set that corresponded closely to Radan's comet movement, again suggesting that Estelle fell upon the city like a comet. And yet there is no sky here, so how would it have made it down here like a falling star? Well, when we fight Estelle, we see how it likes to move around from one point to another, by using portals, that look suspiciously like a black hole. Perhaps the portal opened above the Eternal City, and Estelle came through it like one of his meteorites and crashed down upon the city, and thus, this black hole, this portal, would have symbolised and heralded the end of the Eternal City. And if that doesn't float your boat, I have another way of looking at it in regards to a black hole. Because one of the other curious aspects of Estelle's attack on the Eternal City is that it stole its sky. Indeed, the other Eternal Cities, Nocron and Noxtella, have their fake sky above it, yet the third destroyed city does not. And curiously, Estelle's chamber, its lair, does have a starry fake sky. And we have to conclude that this is indeed the starry sky that has been stolen from the Eternal City. But how is it literally possible for a being to take a starry sky and move it somewhere else? Well, you can probably see where I'm going with this. In the previous chapter, we have already discussed how I believe gravity masters can manipulate space-time to create black holes to move from one point to another, a wormhole. And I do believe this is what's happening when Estelle teleports from one point to another. We even see that little bits of rock and rubble are being pulled in towards Estelle's portal as it teleports from one point to another. Objects are being pulled in to this portal, just as a black hole pulls in everything around it, and just as the Eternal Darkness spell pulls incantations and sorceries into its singularity. The Estelle that we face in Yellow Annex Tunnel in the Consecrated Snowfield has such a mastery over gravitational magic that it is able to summon multiple others of its kind who come out of wormholes. And as Zuli points out, these extras are of the grey discoloured variety, identifying them as the hanging cocoon variants of the malformed stars found throughout the rivers, distinct from the mature one that we are fighting. So perhaps, after Estelle had levelled the Eternal City with his meteorites, he vacated the area, taking the sky with him through a portal, a black hole, that not only pulled Estelle through it, but also pulled all light and surrounding matter through it, including the starry sky that was sucked up like a vacuum through this hole and deposited into Estelle's new lair. And thus, I would see the Eternal Darkness spell as a very fitting representation of the ruin of this Eternal City, the technique through which their sky was stolen. 
and now is replicated by stealing others' incantations. So if I believe Estelle was not created in the Eternal Cities, what type of life form do I believe him to be, aside from being a malformed version of a star born in the void far away? Well, in fact, there may be some hints as to a natural life cycle for this Estelle species. An interesting discussion on Estelle's form was started by Zulie the Witch on Twitter, where they compare Estelle's various clones, the malformed star variants, with the discolouring. In this discussion, Twitter user Sin compared the life cycle of Estelle to that of antlions, where the falling star beast is the larval form of the species and Estelle is the adult form, linking these two boss variants into a single species. And if you look at this life cycle of an antlion image, it is super compelling, as the antlions seem to be a species that share a lot of similar features to both the falling star beasts and the mature Estelle. So while in V-Limit's theory it is posited that the falling star beast is a natural creature that is then twisted by the Nox to create the Estelle, I do believe that the falling star beast is a larval or grub form of the Estelle creature especially when you consider the Astil head prominent on the mature, full-grown falling star beast found in Mont Gelmir, which suggests that the humanoid skull isn't the result of human tampering and is naturally part of their physiology even at this larval stage. The larval grub of antlions is very reminiscent of the falling star beast, both having mandibles and fairly stocky bodies. The antlion cocoon phase could be represented by the malformed stars found throughout the underground rivers. Again, these are the variants that hang from the roof like a cocoon and don't have the colours of the mature variants. And the way that they hang down is definitely reminiscent of the cocoon of various insect species, though I do also think we see a likeness of the cocoon sage already in the falling star beast, as the rock formations upon its skin could easily be compared to the cocoon structures built by antlions. Finally, the fully formed mature Estelle is of course strikingly like the adult form of an antlion with its wings and elongated body. So again, credit to Sin for pointing out all these similarities on Twitter. In a nutshell, this suggests that these stellar creatures are their own form of life with their own life cycle. And it is the best explanation as to why we meet multiple Estelles throughout Elden Ring. But there is still a little more here to be unpacked in regards to Estelle's behaviour and physiology. Returning to the tweets on the antlions, Sin also makes the point that antlions are blind and that they use pheromones or vibrations to detect prey. Now this is interesting to me because it makes me think of Waves of Darkness, the Ash of War that we can not only make from Estelle's remembrance, linking it to him, but it is also a technique that Estelle uses on us in battle. Perhaps these dark waves, these pulses, are an extension of how it communicates with others of its kind, because they are blind. Indeed, Estelle's eye sockets are empty, and we aren't really sure if the blue rolling eye operates as what we would conceive to be an eye. Indeed, it is very reminiscent of Lusat's crown, and indeed took the place of his brain. So perhaps this operates in a similar fashion for the Estelles, as a cogitation centerpiece as well as a locus for their power. Indeed, this seems like a more likely use for it, given the way the eye lights up when Estelle uses some of its more powerful gravitational abilities. And similarly, this eye also lights up on the mature falling star beast when it unleashes its gravitational powers. So in short, these are predatory animalistic stars, extremely dangerous and extremely powerful. An aggressive star creature that literally shows the full power of celestial magic. Now, while we have explained the animalistic elements to them, and while they may be born in a void far away and not in an Anoxian lab, there is still something distinctly unnatural about them, and it is repeatedly hammered home that this creature is malformed. It's a bastard, an unwanted consequence, meaning there must be something fairly unnatural about them nonetheless. There is something else in Estelle's various epithets that may fit in with the explanation that Estelle is a fitting punishment for Noxian meddling. In his remembrance, he is referred to as a falling star of ill omen. In Quelag's video titled, The Elden Ring Keeps Me Up at Night, 
Quelag brings up the subject of Chaldean astrology, a group of astrologers and thinkers from Neo-Babylon, and I will link Quelag's full video on that subject below as they will explain it much better than me and the video goes into a tremendous amount of detail. But in short, Quelag brings up the relevance of these astrologers because of the idea of fate being dictated by the stars, something the Chaldean astrologers believed. One of the other things they looked for were omens in the stars, and that to the Chaldeans, a star of El Omen was usually a sign that divine forces were upset, and how relevant this would be to the Nox. Everything they do is unnatural, upsetting the natural order of things, from forming the dragon kin soldiers, creating mimic tears, or crafting the fate bonded blade known as the finger slayer blade. In particular, the Nox are known to fiddle with fate latent within the stars, distilling it into puppet drafts and the celestial dew, to manipulate fate in different ways. Perhaps this malformed star came to the Eternal City because of their meddling with fate, their meddling with the stars. The Nox have played with fate and tried to control it in a way that humans shouldn't be able to do, and in that way he is their ill omen, a karmic or Newtonian response to their actions, and in a more macro view, perhaps the prevalence of malformed falling stars across the lands is a result of all the upsets that keep happening to the natural and cosmic order. The fettering of fate, the halting of the constellations, the confinement of death, the killing of a two fingers, the spread of death root, and of course the shattering of the Elden Ring. All of these things are capable of upsetting the cosmic order. A lot of them represent stagnation in different ways, and perhaps this gives birth to malformed versions of stars, bastards born of cosmic upset and the meddling of humans and gods. That's of course my speculation, but I can't help but think this must be close to the truth given that stars are linked to fate and fate has been messed with so much in Elden Ring, with humans and gods upsetting the harmony of the universe for their own ends and goals. This would certainly fit the unwanted consequence translation via Mirko, a consequence of their meddling an ill omen whose malformation is a testament to the sins of the Nox, who grasps at forces beyond their ken. For all those who would dare challenge the cosmic balance of the universe, you may well face your own Star of Darkness. So thanks guys, that is my take on some of the various cosmic mysteries that we find in Elden Ring. I've wanted to do this soup style video for a while, as these are various subjects I wanted to touch on, but probably haven't had enough to do their own video. If you like this video, please consider dropping a like and subscribing to the channel, as I do plenty of Elden Ring lore content and have hours of it to go through for yourself. But until next time guys, let me know what you'd like me to cover next, and leave me your comments below if you think I've missed anything, you disagree with me on anything, or in general just other facts of lore. But until next time guys, I will see you amongst the ruins of the destroyed Eternal City. Take care, and have a wonderful weekend.